0: Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 26. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is the very center of our salvation. Now, I'm fully aware that as I say that, it may be flashing across your mind, but Jeff, what about the resurrection? As Detective Sherlock Holmes would often say to his apprentice, Mr. Watson, elementary, my dear Watson, I say to you, Fellowship Family, patience, my dear Fellowship Fam. We'll get there in due time, but today and next Sunday, we say along with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2-2, I resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, <clears throat> Notice too how Paul always leads with the cross when he defines the gospel message. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, For what I have received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Paul always started the world-changing message of the gospel with the cross. Without it, there is no salvation. If you and I are sharing the gospel, you cannot bypass the cross. For him and us, there's no message without talking about the crucifixion of the righteous one. Today, we get a chance to walk with Jesus for his last 200 steps on this earth before his death. and We must remember that Jesus' journey to the cross started 33 years earlier in a manger but even in that manger there was a shadow of the cross over it jesus knew he had come to die matthew 20 tells us the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many and in revelation 13:8 the apostle john tells us that jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world The Trinity planned it. God the Father ordained it. This was no surprise to God. This was planned before the earth was created. The cross exposes us men and women as incredibly cruel. And God as amazingly kind and compassionate. This is why the cross was foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. People cannot get in their heads. They're so depraved unless God intervenes that they are sick and sinful and needy. So to one, it's foolishness because I'm good. And to other, it's a stumbling block because I'm good. Unless a person sees themselves as cruel, And God is merciful, the cross will be foolish or stumbling block to them. John Stott, in his great classic, The Cross of Christ, puts it this way Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to say to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in history and the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. So on this approximate 200-yard journey from Pilate's Palace, where Jesus was beaten to a bloody pulp. Where he was unrecognizable, Isaiah 52 says, that his face was marred beyond recognition. Where they put a scarlet robe on him to mock him as king. Where they slammed twisted thorns down on his head. Where they put a staff in his hand as if he were the king and then took it from him and crushed his skull over and over again, Matthew 27 tells us. This 200 yard step from Pilate's place to Golgotha, we'll see three things this morning. We'll see the cross and the characters involved. We'll see the cross and the character they made of him. And we'll see the cross and the criminals and their two responses. Read with me if you would, and whether you're here at home or in the tent, starting in verse 26. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wounds that never bore and the breast that never nursed. They will begin to say to the mountains, follow on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they were crucified, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The cross and its characters, or the characters, verses 26 through 31. It starts off with, and as they led him. So we ask the question, who are they? And if we go back to in verse 13, it tells us who they were. They were the chief priests, the Sadducees, the high priests, the former high priests, the Sanhedrin made up of scribes and Pharisees. In some ways, it was the collective spiritual leadership of Israel. And they also included the folks who were screaming, crucify him, earlier that day. It also included the Roman soldiers. And the bottom line is they hated Jesus. One theologian put it this way. This is, this is the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the world. Pilate had said three times that he is innocent. Pilate's wife warned him, Jesus is innocent. This man has done nothing. The leaders of Israel know he's innocent, but they're blinded by their hatred. Jesus has and is a threat to their power. But as they led Jesus away, Luke tells us they seized a man named Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country, and they placed the cross beam, probably not the whole cross, but the, just the Horizontal beam placed it on his back and he walked with Jesus behind him on the cross. So, who is Simon of Cyrene? We have a name, we have a man named who carried the very cross of Christ. Jesus is carrying his cross into the city. Simon Cyrene or out from the city, and Cyrene, the text tells us, is entering the city from the countryside. He says, from the region of Cyrene, which is modern-day Tripoli in the country of Libya northern Africa. Now, Jesus is exhausted, it's understandably. He has a loss of blood. Medical researchers have said his organs are hanging out, his lower sides of his body He has a body that is in shock and excruciating pain. He's had no no sleep, and the text makes it clear that they laid this beam on the back of Simon of Cyrene. All the Gospels mention this man by name. We do know this. Simon is a Jewish name, and he was likely a Jewish worshiper, who is traveling from Cyrene for the Passover. Jews came from all over the world. He probably has no idea what's going on in Jerusalem. He finds himself all of a sudden thrust into this situation where they grab him and they say, carry his cross. Who is this? What is this? What is happening? His circumstances are out of control. This is a story of a sovereign God who is at work building the kingdom of God, even during the killing of his own son. To the naked eye, old Simon is just a a random dude who got caught up in the fray of the execution of, in his mind, three criminals. But there's more going on that meets the naked eye. If I can say anything to you this morning, one of the things that's helped me most in my spiritual growth is to always know there is more that's going on that meets the naked eye if you know Christ. Always. He is at work. He is at work transforming me. He is at work transforming you. He is at work in us and through us. He is always at work. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. And here we see that. Acts 2 tells us, there were devout Jewish men from Cyrene at Pentecost. Hmm. Mark tells us more. That Simon of Cyrene is the father of Alexander and Rufus. So he gives us a few more details. Now you got to remember, Mark wrote the book of Mark while in where? Rome. Paul writes then in Romans 16, 13, he just sort of wraps up the book of Romans. He says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Are are you following me here? Are Are you seeing the scriptures come together? Are you seeing that our naked eye can't see what God was doing on that day? that he brought Simon of Cyrene along just at the right time, such for a time as this, to carry the cross of his beloved son. And through that, Simon of Cyrene comes to Christ. Simon of Cyrene's wife comes to Christ. And at least one of his sons, Rufus, comes to Christ and becomes a strong believer and leader in the church at Rome. And Simon's wife. Becomes a great encourager. A mother-like figure. Huh. And the apostle Paul. Man, this, this shook me up this week. Shook me up in a way that there's so many times that I'm looking at my circumstances with only human eyes. What's happening to me? And I forget that God is in it. All oh, the irony when Jesus looks as if he is done, <laughs> and yet God the Father is building the kingdom. God, we've been talking about making room for the mission. God is always making room for the mission. If you want some encouragement this week, begin to see what happens to you as running through the sovereign hands of God. God, what are you doing? What are you up to? How do you want to use me? How do you want to use this to impact me and others? Simon of Cyrene. The second group of people or characters are the multitude. Verse 27 says, And there followed him a great multitude of people. We met these folks back on Monday during the Passover week when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Remember them? They had heard that Jesus raised Lazarus the, from the dead. They thought maybe, just maybe, he's the Messiah. They lay palm branches down, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. 9. But the reality is Jesus didn't come through for them as they expected Jesus to come through for them. He didn't overthrow Rome, but instead he attacked the temple as being irreligious and he attacked the spiritual leaders of Israel. This is what many have called a fickled mass of people. They wanted Jesus for what he might do for them in the here and now, but he wanted, they wanted no part... And what he needed to do in them, which was forgive their sins, invade their life, and transform their life. They wanted none of that. This is the beginning of the prosperity gospel group here, folks. They wanted power, and Jesus wanted God honoring life transformation. They knew about Jesus, they had some positive feelings toward Jesus, but they did not and would not entrust themselves to Jesus being king of kings in their lives. So we have Simon of Cyrene. We have the multitude. And thirdly, we have weeping women. In this particular scenario with the weeping women, we probably have mixed motives here. Some of the women feel genuinely sad and Some of these women, if not most of them, are participating in this mourning and lamenting and weeping because it's a tradition. When someone was crucified and killed, executed, the tradition was to go and weep and mourn sort of professional mourners, professional lamenters. This was a, a verbal process, a verbal production of groaning and moaning and screaming as they followed these three folks to Golgotha. Their sympathy toward Jesus, for sure, as if he is some helpless victim. And I don't know whether you noticed as I read the text, Jesus put a stop to this victimhood that they were pressing upon him immediately. As his body convulses in excruciating pain, Jesus actually turns and speaks to them, and he says, Weeping women, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. And then he lays a prophecy out. There is coming a day, When it will be better that a woman can't have a child. When it be better that a woman has no child to breastfeed. That in itself is a reverse of Jewish culture. A woman was called blessed when she could bear and feed children. And Jesus said it would be better if you don't have children to feed. He says because in that there's a day coming that women will beg to die. And these women are representative of the whole nation of Israel. He said, There's coming a day that they'd rather be dead than having children and feeding their children. They'd rather have mountains fall on them than to birth children and feed them. Jesus is saying, I am not the victim. You're the victim. The real victims. Weep for them. Weep for yourself. The big picture of this, Jesus is saying you better start weeping for yourselves because the time of grace for Israel is done. Judgment is coming to Israel because they have rejected the Messiah. This is a prophecy for the destruction of Israel in 70 A.D. when God used the Romans as an instrument or tool to judge his people for the rejection of his blessed son. And Jesus tells these women to weep for Israel just as he was broken hearted and weeped in Luke 19, 41 when he said, and when he drew near and saw the city, Jesus wept over it because he knew that they were going to reject him. He loved Israel. But this is accountability. Jesus is brokenhearted over Israel and not believing that indeed he was the chosen one, the righteous one, the Messiah. Make no mistake, folks. Even as Jesus goes to the cross, he is not a victim. He is the judge. He is in control. He is not a human pawn. And then in verse 31, Jesus is this short but profound conversation with a kind of a proverb. He says, and in this, Jesus is the green wood and Israel is the dry wood. And if we translate it, it would read like this. If the Roman army will deal with me in this way, Israel, what will they do to you? Or, may we put it this way, if they will treat me this way, God in the flesh, when God is present with his people, this green wood, imagine, or how do you think they will deal with you when I am absent, when Jerusalem is abandoned by God, the dry wood? Weep for yourself. Have no pity for me. The person who hates Jesus, let's make sure we're clear. The person who hates Jesus as they did, or has positive feelings toward Jesus as the multitude did, or has sympathy for Jesus as the weeping women did. They're all in the same category, folks. They're not Christ followers. They can't be because they have not come To Jesus on his terms. The leaders, they believe Jesus is demonic. The multitudes believe he's a sugar daddy to give them power, material benefits, and more fish to eat. The weeping women think he needs cuddling. But Jesus says, nope, I am the king of kings, the only name upon heaven or earth in which men and women will find salvation. Man, I want to say to us, our churches in America are full of those people. Because when you misidentify who Jesus is, you also miss out on the impact that he will have on your soul. So we have the cross and the characters. The next, we have the cross and the caricature. As you know, a caricature can be defined as a gross distortion of reality. And in verses 32 to 38, that's exactly what we have happening here. The people who participated in the crucifixion of Jesus turned Jesus into this terrible, horrible caricature. In some ways, the the butt of a joke gone bad for all eternity so jesus has been stripped off his freedom his rights his friends his clothing his ministry his honor and he's about to be stripped of his life and so yeah folks man it's funny time in jerusalem it's amusement park it's a comedy show they say, let's gamble to see who gets the king's clothes. <laughs> He's been supposedly saving others. Can't save himself. Some old savior he is. Funny. He's supposed to be the chosen one of God. But we about to kill the chosen one. Hmm. Want some cheap wine, Jesus? Drink up, big fellow. Hey Jesus, you know there's a sign above your head. Says you the King of the Jews, man. It's good to be in your presence. <laughs> it's not funny. From God's viewpoint is evil, it's depraved. And the reason I'm shook up a little bit because I know I would have been there doing that. I know I would have. That's how I think. That's what I look like before Christ. These are people who are the hands and feet of the devil of hell. These people are gawking, like they're looking at a car wreck in verse 35. The ruler scoffed at him. Soldiers mocked him, gawking and scoffing and mocking, while he wears the royal crown of thorns. They said and did these things right in the face of the living God in the face of the only righteous man to ever live. And what was Jesus' response? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Which is exactly what Isaiah predicted hundreds of years before in Isaiah 52, 12, 53, 12. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for his transgressors. Who does that? Who gets treated like that? This side of heaven in response with mercy. I don't, and my bet is you don't either, not naturally, not instinctively, not with your first chance response. I'll tell you who does it. Our God does it. That's why we say with a raised voice and a full heart, we say with the psalmist, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Even if you were and once were acting just like them. We say with a raised voice and a full heart with David in 2 Samuel 24, then David said to God, I am in great distress, let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. We say with Moses in Deuteronomy 7 For the Lord your God is a merciful God. We say with Paul in Ephesians 2 But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. We say with Jeremiah in Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. We say with Luke in Luke 1, and His mercy is for those who fear Him. We say with Titus in Titus 3:5, He saved us not because of works done by us, not because of our goodness. There was no goodness, but according to his own mercy. And folks, it is this mercy, the scripture says, that leads you and I to repent and to sin less and to follow hard after him because we get what we do not deserve and we take it for granted. And let me put it plainly, I take it for granted. And the less I take it for granted, the more I grow and the more Christ becomes supreme inside of me. The ignorance that Jesus speaks of when he says they know not what they do, it's not because the Jews lacked knowledge about who the Messiah was. It is an error in judgment, an error about him being the Messiah. They should have known because they knew what Psalm 22 said. Go read that this afternoon. Where the psalmist writes about crucifixion 500 years before crucifixion ever came into existence. The Jews should have known. The Jews should have known because of Isaiah 53. Go read that. They should have known because of Zechariah 12:10. They are laughing now, mocking now, scoffing now, gawking now, And it's all funny, but the the very second that they took their last breath on the face of this earth, all the laughing and gawking and mocking and scoffing came to an abrupt end. And this joke turned into an instant horror. In Revelation 1.7, Apostle John tells us Not only will it turn into a joke when they take their last breath, but they'll be reminded of again, reminding of their scoffing and gawking and mocking when Jesus returns when he writes, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Please let us not get all high and mighty. As we observe what the Bible would call fools at work. For if God had not moved on you and I with supernatural, powerful, unexplainable mercy, we've been a part of this character of Jesus that would have solidified our eternal destiny in hell. Because Galatians 6, Paul makes clear God will not be mocked. John Stott, in his classic Cross of Christ, puts it this way Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. When you make, and I make, that personal application, Jesus has a chance to be supreme in your life. And when you don't, he doesn't. Lastly, the cross and the criminals. Verses 39 through 43. I don't know about you, but I've always been pretty cynical when it came to deathbed conversions. And I think that's okay. Only God knows what happens to a man who has lived as a pagan and a hellion all his life and all of a sudden Jesus becomes precious to him hours or days before he dies. Only God knows. And I'll leave it there. But these five verses tell us it is possible. The first criminal joins in with the others in his sarcastic scoffing, his sick mocking of Christ. Imagine that, to have such a hard heart that even hours before your own death, you're mocking God in the flesh. Matthew and Mark, though, tell us, give us more of the story, the parallel passages that the second criminal was actually doing the same thing as the first criminal, that they were both mocking Christ. But something here... (laughs) Something here begins to happen with the second criminal. God, sorry. Uh, As his body wilted in pain, it seems as if his mind became crystal clear. One writer said, and I agree with him, what you are witnessing here is a divine, sovereign, miracle of salvation where God, as only God can do, makes the blind see the mercy of God. To save a man, a criminal, a wicked, despicable man who is being killed because he's so evil and is mocking his son, and within hours, he saves him. There are no words to describe that. What we see happening to this man is exactly what happens to every person who becomes genuinely saved. They bring nothing to the table. (laughs) You bring nothing to the table just as that criminal brings nothing to the table. Verse 40 They finally have a sense of the fear of a holy and righteous God. Verse 40 again, they know they are condemned. They know they are not worthy to spend eternity with God in heaven. Verse 41, they finally see their sin clearly. Verse 41 again, they see the perfection and innocence and beauty of the Lord Jesus. And the difference between the two is so glorious and so different in such a contrast that they know that is who I need. And then in verse 42, this criminal says, Jesus, remember me when you come coming to your kingdom. Here's what we know here. No one comes into the kingdom of God unless the very righteousness of Christ covers that person. This man, maybe not in full knowledge, but is asking for forgiveness. Jesus realizes that. And Jesus makes a promise, and he emphasizes it with a truly. I hear you. I understand what you're asking for. And I'm the one that you need to ask because I can deliver. And today, when you take your last breath, you will be with me in paradise. Promise. As we move into our "so what," I want to remind you this morning that God saves, and He saves whom He pleases. The Psalmist, Psalm one fifteen three, says, "Our God is in the heavens, and He does all that He pleases. He's never backed into a corner to do something He hates to do. He's always acts according to His own good pleasure." And it was pleasing to God to send his son to the cross. As ironic as that is, Romans 8 tells us he did not spare his own son. It was pleasing to God to save this criminal. Imagine that. And it was pleasing to God to save you. Hebrews 12, 3 tells us in light of that. And this is your so what? So consider him. So consider the Lord Jesus Christ who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Translated, so that you will make him supreme in all of your life. Consider him. And I want you to do that this morning. Consider him who suffered on your behalf and saved you when you were unsavable? Take a minute to ask the question. So what?